Hi, Adela here from Podcast Brunch Club. In this episode of the PBC Podcast, I was lucky enough to get to sit down and chat with Esther Arma, who is the host of The Spin Podcast. One of her podcast episodes was featured in this month's podcast playlist. The playlist theme was Common Ground, and the episode we featured was entitled Fashion Forum Africa Part 2. You can find the entire playlist at podcastbrunchclub.com slash common ground. On a quick side note, I want to apologize for any audio quality issues. I'm still trying to sort out the best way to record remotely. You'll hear a lot of street noise from Esther's office in Ghana, but I kind of love it. It adds to the realness and to the ambience. And anyway, Esther is truly inspirational, so I think you'll love what she has to say. I hope you enjoy our chat. So welcome, Esther. I'm so happy to have you on the PVC podcast and to give the the community a bit more of a behind the scenes look at the, the spin and this episode of the spin that we've listened to this month. Thank you so much for having me, um, Adela. I'm so excited that Podcast Brunch Club chose this spin. And I think it's so extraordinary that um, people all over the world, from Switzerland to Australia to, to China, um, are going to be listening to this this show that I love so much, and this particular episode as well. It's really exciting. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great segue then. Why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about the spin? How long has it been going on? What was your inspiration behind it? I know it's also a radio show. And then maybe a little bit more details about about the particular episode, the, the fashion part two episode. You can talk about fashion part one too. <laughs> so, we, we didn't listen to that one, but I'd be curious to hear about it. So this Spin is um, a labor of love that is really the, the product of the combinations of my um, love affairs with travel, storytelling, perspective, and exploring fresh ways to introduce all kinds of people to perspectives they may never have considered or entertained on a range of issues. And so it actually began, I'm sitting here talking to you from Accra, Ghana, but it began its life in New York when I was the uh, morning show host for a radio show called Wake Up Call. And I used to be invited to do lots of media panels all the time. And they were always, always all men. They were always all men until they had something to do with quote unquote women. And they would call the chick and the chick would come in yes. do her quote unquote women's bit and basically leave. And I remember thinking, why is there this island that we travel to called women and um, pick up a perspective, bring it along and then take it back? Like in this, this day and age, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. This is maybe um, four years ago, four or five years ago. And so whilst I was doing, I was doing a radio show, it was on air um, every morning from six till um, 10. And so I created this. 13-minute slot on a Tuesday that just featured women of color um, from, they were African-American, they were Caribbean-American, they were Puerto Rican, they were Indian-American, they were Indian, they were queer, they were transgender, just all different types of women of color. They came from the worlds of academia, art, activism, and journalism. All of them were doing important social justice work in their own field. And so I would bring together different perspectives and explore whatever the big issue of the day was, but put it through the lens of those women in color and their particular expertise. And so we would not necessarily have two academics together. We'd bring together an academic and an activist that would allow us 
what I call a combination of the, the passion, the research, the context and the history. Um, and it was just an amazing way to explore a different perspective on, on big issues. So for one example was when the um, DSK, do you remember the big um, rape case um, where the head of, uh, I think it was the DSK? I don't remember his name. And he was alleged to have, been, to have raped a, uh, an immigrant African woman. And the story made huge global headlines, and there was all kinds of discussion about it. So we had a really interesting spin. We had um, immigrant women just talk through the experience of fleeing somewhere and entering another space, and what it means to then work and live and build, and the kind of fear, um, and the relationship you have with um, white straight male authority. It was just really interesting. We had so many calls from people like, wow, this is just a different perspective. I never thought about it this way. Mm-hmm. That really is the crux of the spin. You may know the story. You may have heard the headlines, but you would never necessarily have heard this perspective of it. Um, and so that's how it began. And then when I stopped hosting the show, um, the, the, the morning show, I picked the spin up and then turned it into a weekly one-hour show with essentially the same lineup. And we did two things. So we created it as a podcast on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. But then it also airs, we have a distribution company called the African American um, Public Radio Consortium. And we record it via uh, NPR in Washington, D.C. And now me here in Ghana. But initially it was recorded via NPR in um, New York and women literally all over the world, depending on where they happen to be. Um, and it was me and three women to begin with. And then it was me and two women. And we would literally chop it up about whatever the big issue of the day was, but put through interesting lenses. Um, we did a when they were all when Me Too began, and there were all the stories about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spin decided to launch um, a global conversation on consent, and we did this amazing series called Hashtag The Consent Convo, and it was all about asking women how they learned about consent and what informed it. And it was a, another way to really create space, safe space, to explore how little we talk about consent and that there is an entry point to doing it that is far less um, accusatory or defensive or problematic. So that's really um, how it began. And then it, for me, like I said, it's a, it's a love affair and the women who, many of whom didn't know each other, have all become friends or colleagues or have worked together as a result of me bringing them together on the spin. So something I'm really proud of and, and always really um, excited about. It was named uh, one of the top 10 podcasts by Clutch Magazine in our first year. Um, so we're very excited about that. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I can, um, I can relate. Like the idea of just being the person who brings people together is really inspirational. Like I see all these podcast bunch club meetings happening all over the world. And it just makes me so happy every time I get a, um, a picture of, you know, the group in Shanghai or the group in DC or wherever. And I, you know, I feel like that must be the same for you. You're bringing women together. They're all literally all over the world and hopefully creating connections that last beyond their episode of the spin. Absolutely, it's that. But it's also the idea that um, because it's on radio stations in different parts of the, the world, it's the idea that we do a show on the on consent with a Ugandan woman, an African American woman, and Ghanaian woman, 
that we listen to on a radio show in Iowa. <laughs> and people that I will never know and will never meet are sitting listening to these women talk about what consent means from cultural perspectives and familial perspectives and societal perspectives. And you just think, wow, I find it extraordinary. So yes, it's exactly as you said, it's bringing people together to create connections beyond the moment that they gathered around the mic for one hour. So that's exciting. But also music plays a part because we always choose music that, that helps illuminate the discussion on the, on the show as well. Yeah. I've never heard of the spin before I came on podcast lunch club and I'm really, I'm a fan. I love it. Um, I'm going to have to go back and listen to those episodes about consent. Um, so I, we were talking a little bit offline before about your background and I, I wanted you to just kind of give, give the audience a little bit of your background and talk about, um, in particular, I want you to kind of talk about that moment. in I think you said it was in Madrid, uh, and, and sort of mm-hmm. that realization that you had and how, you know, that whole story. Yes. Yeah, so I was, um, I was born in London. Um, I'm Ghanaian and I was born in London. I was partially raised between Ghana and London. I went to school in um, London, always been fascinated by culture and language and travel. And so um, by the time I was 16, 17, I spoke fluent Spanish and I was, I was just a curious mind. I had an adventurous spirit. So I started traveling. And what's really interesting and what was an amazing discovery for me was recognizing that as a black woman moving through the world, you enter into a living relationship with a particular nation or population with you, with race, with Africa, with whatever that country's relationship has been historically with somebody who looks like you manifests in clear present time. So I became this kind of living manifestation of a particular place's relationship with race or with women or particularly with black women. And so I had some really sometimes bizarre, sometimes difficult, frightening illuminating experiences and one of the big ones was in I was 17 and I went to Madrid and I was committed to um, um, by the time I left speaking 101% fluent Spanish so I mean if you can believe that I was actually staying in a convent which is crazy Um, and there were there were women from all over um, Spanish speaking world in this one place that was run by nuns the shit was crazy. Can I swear? Can I get some podcast brunch? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Shit was cra- <laughs> it was crazy, but it was fantastic. Nobody wow. spoke English. So for a month, 24 hours a day, I only spoke Spanish. It was fabulous. Um, I did not have any understanding of being black and woman in Madrid. And I remember just going for a walk or, or working out. But I remember taking a trip into McDonald's and I walked in. And the entire place, I mean, imagine a McDonald's, like a reason, a, a big McDonald's, not one of the kind of little ones, but a big one. And as I walked in, the place just went silent and everybody was turning around. So I'm turning around thinking, who, who's here? What's all the, what's all this fascination? It took me a good minute to realize that it was me. And it was one of the most, um, it was kind of the visible, um, representation of blackness and being foreign in one space at one time and at 17 it was very very disconcerting and disturbing um and then i went on to have 
phenomenal experiences of people wanting to teach me how to dance flamenco and um, getting into nightclubs for free um, and having a lot of fun with a whole bunch of um, Spanish girls who were like away from parents from the first time and just getting up to no good. <laughs> but yeah. it, was a, it was a real combination of experiences. Same thing happened when I went to Brazil and um, yeah. going to Brazil for the first time in the millennium and learning about there is a relationship between um, black women and European or Western city white men in Rio de Janeiro that is then very different if you go to the north of Brazil into the Bahia. And of course, when you're traveling somewhere you haven't been for a while, you read travel books or you read guidebooks. And it made me realize that the experience of travel is not universal. It can be profoundly individual, but, but really um, revelatory in ways that you yeah. just could not possibly have imagined. So I had yeah. no, I mean, I knew that Brazil had the highest population of um, African people outside Africa. So I'm figuring, oh, I'm going to stroll and be right at home. I got harassed like I've never been harassed in Rio de Janeiro, specifically wow. by rich white men. It was very disturbing. And I would learn um, that I happened to fit the physical type of um, women who essentially uh, engage in relationships with usually rich white Western men as a means of economy, education, but it's not, it's not um, traditional prostitution on the corner. They're always very wealthy. And we ended up hiring um, an apartment. My, I was on holiday with my boyfriend. And we ended up hiring an apartment from a Brazilian woman who's married to a very, very rich English man. And when she and I were alone one day at breakfast, and I said to her, I'm having all these bizarre experiences. I keep getting stopped. I keep getting harassed. It got to the point where I couldn't work out by myself because I was just harassed all the time. And um, she said to me, yes, because you look like those, you know, the tall, tall, lean, brown women that these men take up with. And you can have, these men can be directors, middle managers, CEOs, and for years, they will go back and forth. And when they come to Brazil, they will take up with that same particular woman over a period of whatever time they're working in, in Rio. It was a really extraordinary experience. Then I went to the Bahia completely different experience. It's very rooted in Yoruba, Nigerian culture, and the same body, same complexion of skin, and you're an absolute superstar. We ended up on TV in Brazil. Imagine that. <laughs> it was crazy. It was yeah. crazy. We had such a good time. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying about travel being a very individual thing, I, it just resonates with me a lot. I've, we spoke before, and you know that I've traveled a lot. My mom is British, my father is Israeli, and then I also spent most of my 20s traveling for work and for fun. I just, it was very much a part of my life um, for a very long time. And I, obviously, I, I'm, I'm a white woman. I don't have the same, I think, I, I've never had that level of experience. But the only, um, the only place that I can even come close to relating, and it's only very little, is when I went to India. And I've... Every single place I've ever been in my life, and I, I, I visited, I don't know, 30 countries or something, I would go back to, and India is the one place that I would really have reservations about. And I just, you know. Really? What? Yeah. I mean, we were, it was a really awkward time that we went. We actually went right after the um, the tsunami. We we were supposed to be on the beaches of Sri Lanka that didn't even exist anymore seven days after the tsunami hit. So 
our, oh, wow. yeah, it was really yeah. crazy. We were there for a wedding, a friend of ours from, um, I got my master's degree in DC. She was getting married to an Indian who was, you know, an Indian Indian. So from India, she had, she had done an internship in India, met him and they were getting married and, and a bunch of her friends and, and I went to the wedding. We decided to travel a little bit together and then go to the wedding. So, I mean, it was probably not me. It was the fact that it was me along with, you know, four other American women. And I would, let me think who it was three white women and then two Indian women, but like they were both Indian from um, background, but you know, grew up in the United States. And um, I guess we just kind of, I don't know, it was a scene whenever you would see all these, these women walking down the street together, everybody knew immediately where we were, we were American, right? Because probably the way we dress and the way we act. And, um, and we just, I mean, I, at one point I remember being at a, at a temple and just kind of, I kept seeing this one guy in my peripheral vision. And I finally put two and two together that he was following me around and his friend was on the other side of the room taking photos of him with me in them. And yeah. And I mean, it's not, you know, I don't know. It just, and we had a lot of weird questions. How disturbing. Yeah, it was weird. It wasn't like threatening at all. It was just weird. And, and we would have, um, you know, taxi drivers just follow us down the road constantly, like nonstop asking us, do you want to ride? Do you want to ride? Do you want to ride? No breath in between the two questions, the same question over and over and no breath in between. And we would just say, no, no, no. <laughs> We're just going down the block. We don't need a ride there. So, um, you know, you a lot of it you have to brush off. And, and I, you know, a lot of it didn't bother me. But I, at, at the end of it, I ended up getting really sick. And um, and that it was just like my defenses were down. Everything. And my shoes got stolen at the Taj Mahal. <laughs> like, I, it was just. Oh no! Yeah, it was. It was. You had a time. Yeah. You had a time. Yeah. So I mean, but yeah, it's a really yeah. It, it is. It's 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 an experience, and and I actually went and got my master's degree in international education because I think the reason that I I really think, and I would love to hear your perspective on this. I really think that we need, as at least in in America, we need to get our kids out of America. We need to get them out of here for a short, you know, for at least six months. Study abroad should be required to graduate from college. I think it's such an eye-opening experience. You know, the theme of this month is common ground, and I really feel like you can just living in a in a in an environment where everybody's different. You just initially there might be that culture shock, but eventually you sort of settle into it. And it, there's, it takes a period of time to kind of get it, you know, to, 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 to understand the culture. And sometimes it, you know, never will. I don't think I ever, I lived in Ethiopia for a year and I don't think I ever really a hundred percent understand, understood the culture, but I was, I'm a huge proponent of international education and study abroad and travel for young people. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, I mean, I think, See, I think you can travel in different ways because the reality of status and class means that travel is not available to everybody at all. And we are all we are all the sum total of both stories and stereotypes. Um, and so the exposure to versions of people um, by this thing that we call media really impacts how 
people treat people all over the world. And so definitely, um, I've been a journalist for 17, 18 years. I was um, in London for 10. Whilst I worked in London, I, I was in um, doing stories in different parts of um, Africa, whether it's Kenya, Nigeria, or South Africa, or Lesotho, traveling for pleasure. But then also being in places in, in England, having been born and raised in, in partially raised in, in London, being places in England where literally the only relationship with blackness from whiteness is absolute pure hate. Mm. And going to do a story in a place where nobody thought about or realized the extent to which there was racism. And because all the stories had ever been had only ever been done by white people and predominantly white men. There was not even the consideration that there was going to be an issue. And we walked into this just barrage of racist abuse. Um, and so I think, I think it happens, I think the experience of assumption and presumption happens all over the world. I think that it can be lessened actually by the way we do education. And I don't even mean that just mm-hmm. by travel. I mean by being, having experiences in yeah. school that expands children's ideas to the totality of other people. Because we teach partial histories, we tell partial stories, and we expect people to have a sense of a world out of those partial stories and partial histories. And they do, but that sense of prejudice and it's biased and it's not necessarily rooted in the reality. And it shapes how people think about people. It really, really does. And when you're moving around the world, you collide with that. Your body and mind and spirit and heart collides with that. And there are times when that's really, it's, it's wonderful and it's heartwarming and it's loving and it's an extraordinary thing. And there are times when it's disturbing and it's hurtful and it's harmful and it's really problematic. Um, but I think about, you know, I went to school in London um, and I had a very, you know, London, British, the seat of empire. There's a very particular story that is told about every nation that has darker people that is based on the, the roots and the legacy of colonialism. Um, I'm sitting to you, sitting here um, in Ghana, in Africa, and in West Africa, and having a much, much broader history of the world and the roles that people played in it. As a result of that, my perspective completely shifts. And I think that's the beauty of storytelling, and I think that's actually the beauty of podcasts. I think it allows you to enter worlds about which you may be unfamiliar, but it gives you a chance to maybe reimagine what you thought you knew, or at least get another lens on that particular story. Because definitely I found that um, I'm I'm a curious person and I'm a listener, but I also definitely, like I remember being in South Africa the first time in 1997 in Pretoria, and understanding that apartheid may have been over in 1994, but the legacy of legislated hate is like a taste in your mouth. I have never been so scared um, of white men in my life. I couldn't move through a space without a man present because that time, at that point, South Africa's society was very, very gendered and very conservative. And uh, moving alone as a journalist, something I'd done many, many times before, it wasn't in Pretoria, it wasn't safe. I got into a lift with these kind of um, Dutch Afrikaans men. Yeah. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. Their whole energy, for someone to literally view you, a complete stranger, with such a profound but um, visceral hate is an extraordinary experience and one that I would want, 
I would never want anybody to ever have to experience. But I think that um, um, education through the lens of a podcast gives you another opportunity to, to experience the world differently. And I think it's necessary because I don't think we can all travel. I mean, right. we're both blessed to have had the opportunity to travel, which means having money. It means coming from a certain background. Um, millions more don't have that. But I think the way we teach history and the way we do education could change that. And we're, you know, we are, um, we are, we have a relationship with preserving ideas about ourselves. And that is about privilege and power, and it's dangerous. It actually doesn't serve any kind of um, world health or unity or peace. Because when you know the truth, it just changes the story. It just changes the right. lens. How can it not? Yeah. How can it not? Just as when you know a lie, that shapes you too. How can it not? Yeah. I mean, I, I love what you're saying about, about you know, exposing kids, you know, to, to different to different ideas and stories in, in the classroom, you know, where they're already at. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's It's, I mean, even that, though, is problematic, right? Because... You know, I'm living right now. I'm not even. I'm, I moved out of the city. I'm living in a suburb that is primarily affluent, and you know, my fiance's kids go to a school where they feel like they're the poorest kids. And we're actually we're not poor. You know, we're we're you know right middle class. We're 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 good. We're good to go. You know, but they feel like the poorest kids, and yeah. it's it's you know that's a hard thing to teach somebody that they're not. You know, so I kind of want to take these kids and say, well. Why don't we, uh, we got to expose you to some other, you know, some, you know, other cultures, other, other socioeconomic statuses, because this is, you know, your version of reality is not accurate. Absolutely. And it's also the idea that, it's also the idea that the wealth is only measured in money. Right. Do you know what I mean? That the size of the, the size of your house or the size of your bank account is the single defining way that we think about um, wealth. And that's also a product of um, a very linear, very narrow way of, of uh, ed education. And there's all kinds of wealth. And that's also something mm. that we need to be willing yes. to open ourselves up to think about. The wealth of um, culture, the wealth of geography, the wealth of... Yeah. There's, there's other ways to... Yeah, the wealth of relationships, right. and the wealth of community, the wealth of family. All of those things are also wealth. But if the teaching is that wealth right. is money. And money is specifically about the size of your house. And if my house is not the same size as your house, I therefore right. do not have what you have. Then we help children preserve ways of thinking about themselves that really creates a problematic lens when they get older. And we see, them, we see the, the living evidence of that all around us. All around us. Because nobody aspires to poverty. Right. No one's dream is to have less. But we haven't really um, defined what more means in terms of making someone's life better. You know, because lots of people right. live in the houses and they're miserable. Yeah. They're not just miserable, right. they're dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've often <laughs> thought about that. Like, I would, I don't, you know, money is not, for me, is not the, you know, I love these countries that have the uh, gross happiness product. Have you heard of this? That's how, that's one of the... Yes, the growth the GHP. What is that? It's um, it's like, it's it's another measure of the wealth of society. So like just like the GDP or the GNP, like the gross 
happiness product is a measure and it's sort of, I, I don't know how they even come up with how they, I don't know how they measure it, but it's about the, just the general happiness of the population. And it's not, it's, if you look at the quote unquote happiest countries, they're not the richest countries, you know, some of them are richer, but you know, Bhutan is of the happiest country, I think. And I, I forget. Yeah. Whoa. And I want to say, cause wow. I remember I read the, I read the book, this book um, in when I was in Ethiopia, I came across the book and I forgot what it was, but it was, it was something like the world's grumpiest man tries to find to find the world's happiest place, something like that. It was done by a journalist and it was talked about the gross happiness product. And he, he went to all these countries and he did a write up on each one and, and what is considered happiness there. And it was really, it was a great book. I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes and I'll send it to you I'll, just so you can have it. But, um, but while I was in Ethiopia, so this was 2009, 2010, um, France actually implemented measuring the gross happiness product as a measure of, I guess, wealth, which was, I think, the first official, you know, a Western country, I guess, that officially made it a, a thing that they were going to measure. So um, I love that, though. I, I mean, quality of life and 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 just like general contentedness is so much more important than happiness. I mean, sorry. <laughs> general happiness is so much more important than, you know, how much money you have. I often have been to so many countries where I feel like the people are just happier and they almost have nothing. You know, they compared to what I have, they have nothing, but, but they're, they're happier. Money doesn't create happiness. Wow. So this is interesting. I never heard of the, of this GHP. I'm literally gonna. I, I write a, a, a. I'm a columnist here in um, Ghana. I'm gonna research that. I would like to write something about it. You know, I think it's. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think I remember going to um, Kenya, and um, there are all these slums there. And there's a slum. I think it's called Libera, um, and it's described as the biggest slum in the whole of Africa. And, um, you know, I remember saying to the producer that the Times a white British man, I said, you know, it's interesting that it's described as the biggest slum, because I bet you if you ask the people who live there to describe this space, none of them will use this language. And part of the work of journalism is to stop imposing ideas of a nation, of a people, but let them tell you who they are, as opposed to us deciding who they are in comparison essentially right. with who we are, which is essentially what we're doing. So he said, what do you mean? I said, so we're about to interview this guy who you're saying you're, you're, we're doing like a, a, um, a stand-up piece, like a piece to camera, and we're looking at where he's living. And his description, of course, is a comparative one, and it's based on having a very, very nice house in London. So he's describing it as a, you know, it's a broken down shack with different types of materials used to hold it up. And so I said to him, you know what, I want to ask him to describe his home, because I bet you the way he thinks about it has nothing to do with what you think about it. And we had this beautiful exercise where we asked the father and his son to describe their home. And it really was an exercise in being, remembering that other people and the way they see their world is one of the most profound eye-openers. Because he described why they have different types of material and what that's, that's about a relationship to the weather. Um, but also it was about a relationship to his kids. There were things that, were, that, that literally were used to build the house that were memories from his children. They were kids. 
Right. And so the son loved it and he could point to different things on what looked like a makeshift wall and say, oh, this is when he did ABCD or he kicked his ball or he learned wow. to ride this bike or he you know, broke his first tooth or whatever it was. He had stories and his father had into literally the built oh them into the house and into this house. And this kid and his dad were so proud and you really couldn't tell them anything. As I was saying to the producer, see, now if you, we just, pay attention to how he sees his world. That's much more interesting for the audience than you telling the audience that he lives in this rundown shack. Right. Because that's not how he sees it. That's how you see it. And you only see it that way because you're making comparison to having, you know, a five-bedroom right. house in West London, which is not a world that he knows or knows anything and that about. And we automatically but, assume. Um, yeah, and that he hasn't been where you are, so, but you haven't been where he is either. So, yeah. Right. And that we automatically assume that everybody wants what we want. You know, exactly. that's, it's just not true. It's really but, not yeah, true. Yeah, so it's it's actually called Gross National Happiness. Gross National gross Happiness. National happiness. So, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I've never, G-N-H-P, Gross yeah. National yeah. Happiness National. product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the only other thing I wanted to kind of add to that was that, you know, part of what I hear you saying is that, you know, storytelling is is such a huge part of kind of getting people to live in another world for a second you know you know and and i've read something i'm a communications professional and i've read something a while ago about how telling one person's story is like i don't know x amount more compelling to the readers or to the, the audience than telling two people's story and telling two people's story is like way less effective than telling an entire population story. So like these broad strokes that we're making about like, this is the biggest slum, you know, and, or this country is poor and just brushing the world with these broad strokes. It's not doing anybody any favors and really sort of digging deeper and telling the story of one person is so much more compelling to people. And, and I hope, and what I hope is that it brings you know, it, it sort of brings that ideal of common ground closer to everybody participating, which is why I think podcasts are so great because they do a great job and books do the same, you know, novels and things like that, but they just do a great job of telling the story through the lens of one person. Yeah. Yeah. I really agree. And I also think there is, you know, there is an economy to, um, assumptions and generalizations you know it creates um ways for us to measure and judge each other that are mm-hmm. all, that, that make us all less human um in ways yeah. that are unhelpful and the beauty of storytelling is that you know when you hear a child dream um children dream in multiple languages but the universal um, language of imagination. Do you know what I mean? You know, and it's yeah. an extraordinary thing. I, like I said, I remember doing a story in, in, in Kenya and on, on this particular slum that described as the biggest slum in the world and meeting kids who were playing football and listening to the way they imagine the court. So they built the court in the mind. They didn't have um, a football pitch and they didn't have goals, but in their minds, they had everything. They were in Wembley. There were crowds screaming and they shot the winning goal. Right. And they went and, do you know what I mean? Because the universal yeah. language of children is imagination, whatever whatever particular language they speak. And I really think, I agree with you that 
storytelling. Because when you tell the story of one person, you learn how much you have in common. Because the truth is you can never really tell the story of a people. We just think we can. And when we tell the story of the people, it's because it's full of um, impositions and generalizations. And there's an intention to communicating an idea about a people. But when a person shares their particular experience, it's just that. But there's so much um, connectivity and universality when that one person tells their story. It is definitely why I love um, podcasts. It's also part of my, definitely my African ancestry, where the voice is the equivalent of, I call call radio the 21st century drum. And in... The 21st century what? The 21st century drum. Radio is the 21st century drum. Um, And I come from, uh, as an African woman within an African nation, the drum was the means by which stories were told, information was communicated, warnings were given, good news was highlighted, the way in which the drum was beaten was um, indicative, it was illuminative, it was illustrative. And for me, um, the voice does the same thing, it's a storyteller, it carries not just information but ideas, um, it helps us to reimagine our world, it connects us one to the other, it does all these amazing things. Um, and within a podcast and technology, it allows us to travel to places that we may never go physically, but emotionally and spiritually, we can go there. And I think that's such a, that's such a special and beautiful thing. It really is. Wow. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you're very busy, but I have one final question for yeah. you. Um, is there anything that you want to let the audience know about what they should be looking out for with the spin? Like what are, when might we see new episodes or what, what, what are you working on? So, um, so the spin that they're going to listen to, which is called Fashion Forum Africa Part 2, um, was really the result of an explosion of controversy um, during the annual Afropunk Festival in Brooklyn, where people, African-American people, people of color, um, turn out on the beautiful streets of Brooklyn and they wear all kinds of African-centered attire and gear. And somebody, uh, I think he was Nigerian, wrote a piece. He was very disturbed and upset by um, the manifestations of African-centric attire worn by predominantly African-American people. The piece went viral and it caused all kinds of upset and anger and social media discussions. It was crazy. And one of the things I do with the spin is where there's an issue of controversy like that, I always look for the point of connectivity. Like, what is the thing underlying all the anger? And can we offer a fresh perspective to this particular thing? And I do that through this work called emotional justice. And emotional justice is what I call it. It's about the manifestation of the legacy of untreated trauma, um, which is the result of our kind of shared history. And often that's what the spin does through interview and discussions. Um, And so we've been running the best of the spin for um, the better part of this year, where we've had so much material and some people saying, but I missed that one, or I missed that one, or wait a second, what happened to the consent convo? Oh, wait a second, can you run that again? So we decided to do the best of um, the spin, and we've been running these specials with um, Black Women Talking Tech and our entire series on the consent convo. Um, this one on fashion, which was two parts. The first part was actually about the first plus-size um, fashion show in Lagos and how massive it was. Oh. Um, 
and the notion of putting plus size fashion into an African perspective where the notion of a plus size body is very, very different than within a Western perspective. Um, so it was really uh, fascinating and really interesting. So that was part one, which if people are interested to listen to, it's all on the spin one on the SoundCloud and you can just find it right there and enjoy it. And so, yes. And so later this year, I think from um, uh, September, we're going to have the next new set of stories. Um, part of what the spin does is we, we are not reactive to news agendas. We try to set an agenda as opposed to be reactive to one. Um, and so the next set of news stories will be in September. And there's a lot of areas we want to cover. Of course, the Me Too movement is growing in the States and across the West. But here in Ghana, we've started um, hashtag Time's Up GH, um, which is specifically a campaign to stop sex abuse in schools. Okay. Because as I shockingly discovered, teachers in Ghana are one of the highest numbers of perpetrators of sexual abuse in the entire country, in the entire country. And there's 10 regions in Ghana, all over the country, you kept seeing the statistic of teachers showing up, like in the top three numbers of um, people um, abusing, raping, defiling um, young girls, young boys as well. It was extraordinary. And so Time's Up GH has started, and we want to talk about the, the culture of movement and why it matters to understand and acknowledge culture so that you can build something that is impactful as opposed to just support an ideology that may not work within the culture that you um, sit. So all of that, we're very excited, all of that will be coming from September. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know that the audience is going to love hearing from you. And I want to just extend an open invitation to you to, you know, if you ever find yourself in Chicago or New York or any of the places we have a chapter, you're more than welcome to, to meet up with our groups and, and chat. I would love to do that. I actually come to um, New York. I do, a, I do an event in New York once a year, every year. So I would love when I come into um, New York to meet with one of the chapters and just be part of a podcast group and listening. I love podcasts. I love what you're doing, um, Adela. I think it's such a beautiful idea that this global way of us even, you and I connecting, we don't know each other and here we are having this great, whatever, 45-minute chat in different parts of the world. Um, I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So yes, I, I would be honored and I'd say yes. Yes, we'll wholeheartedly say yes. Excellent. So yes, we'll keep in touch. You let me know what your dates are and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see what, you know, whether we can coordinate. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback, email me at adela at podcastbrunchclub.com. Also, think about joining the Podcast Brunch Club newsletter so you can get the playlist as soon as it's published every month. The theme for our June playlist is emotions. Thanks, and happy listening.